Good morning, everybody. I've got a PowerPoint, so I hope you can see through me to see it. Um, Because the Book of Acts, as you will notice, has a lot of places and names. And I think it's good to have access to a map that shows us where some of those places are. And it will hopefully put things in perspective. There it is. That's, that's always uh, magic moments. Right, let's pray before we go any further. Our loving Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word, uh, your word which is life and light. So we pray that uh, you would unfold your word to us today and uh, convict us again uh, of the truth of these things and cause us to be amongst those people that delight in your salvation and that, uh, that want to take it to others. Uh, so we, we pray that you would uh, guide us today and help us to listen well. Uh, to listen obediently, we trust that by your spirit you would write these things deeply on our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 18, uh, I've called the talk today Enduring Everything for God's People. Now you'll notice there's lots of names, there's lots of places and things like that. Unless you've been to Europe and Asia Minor, I'm guessing that some of those places will be a bit uh, strange to you. But they're very important to Luke. And they're, they actually should be important to us. Now I've said this before, I'm going to keep saying it, I think that we are inheritors. We have inherited a message, a story. We are part of something extraordinary and wonderful and very, very big that God has been doing throughout the world, throughout the nations. But it's because of the faithful ones that we read about here today that we have the message of Jesus. Because we didn't invent it. It didn't start with us. There are others who have translated the Bible. There are others who have written the Bible. There are others who have gone out there, their work suffering so that people like us can sit here today and hear these things about how we can be saved and how we can know fellowship with God uh, throughout all eternity. Uh, It's an extraordinary thing. We're part, we are are inheritors. We're people who are downstream of those who paid great, great prices to, to win these things for us. And God uses people who uh, remain famous and in this story you'll find people who are used who are not named at all. There's every likelihood that no one in this room will have a book written about them. But we all want to know that our names are written down in the most important book of all which is the, the Lamb's Book of Life which is kept in heaven. Right. So whether you become famous or whether you're not, there are things in this reading today that will be helpful and they remind us of where we sit in God's story. Um, so, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Uh, now, before we go, I should have just a bit of an introduction before. Philippians 4. One, a good thing to do in, in understanding the New Testament is to connect the book of Acts with the other parts of the New Testament that we call the letters. Right? And you'll find various of the names that we've said, we've read today, turning up in the letters that Paul wrote. But there's also times when Paul refers in his letters to things that have taken place that are described historically in the book of Acts. So Paul says to the Philippians, Philippi was the first place that he preached the gospel in Europe. We saw that a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 16. But when he wrote back to the Philippians because he couldn't be with them and he needed to talk to them, he wrote in Philippians 4, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learnt the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, I was at a funeral once where a fellow had that as his life verse and what he really meant was he could do dumb things on motorbikes because Jesus gave him the strength. That's not what that verse means. That verse means that Jesus will help you do whatever he needs you to do for the gospel, whether that means you go hungry or whether you've got lots of money. And so we're going to see in the story that we read today that Paul begins penniless and he ends supported and yet he preaches the gospel. 2 Timothy 2 verses 9 to 10, the last letter that Paul wrote, sitting in prison, he says, I'm suffering, bound with change as a criminal. So that's his physical condition, but he says the word of God is not bound. So the word is always active, the word is powerful. Therefore, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. So whatever God wants him to do for the sake of leading other people who God has known in advance to belong to him, whatever it takes, Paul will do it. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, the chosen of God, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Keep those those concepts in mind. Paul can do all things through him who gives him strength. But Paul will endure all things for the sake of those that God already knows belong to him that have yet to hear the gospel. So this story that we've got today is the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Now we've talked about this before but the map, uh, Paul started the journey in Antioch in Syria, so a fair way north of Jerusalem. He took the message all the way through the Roman province of Asia uh, as far as Troas where he had a vision Uh, come over to Macedonia and help us and so he preached the word in Philippi and then in Thessalonica and in Berea and then he went down to Athens and Nathan talked about that last week and now we find him ministering in Corinth now Athens is probably more famous to Australians than Corinth is Athens was the seat of Greek learning now the Greek uh, this it wasn't a country in the way that we talk about a country today Greeks were bound together by culture and language. And so wherever you lived, you were a Greek, if you had their culture and their language. They didn't have a national flag like they do now. Every one of these states was like... uh, These cities was a state to itself. It had its own government. And they often went to fight each other. And you know why the Olympic Games were held? Because every four years they'd have the Olympic Games and they'd agree that they'd stop fighting for the period that the Games were on. And so all these various Greek city-states often used to fight with each other. Now, Athens was past its best by the time Paul went there. It was still a place where lots of people went because they wanted the education that you could get in Athens, but it was past its best. Whereas Corinth, when Paul got there, was at the peak of its powers. Corinth was an extraordinary city, much more powerful and in its day much more famous than even Athens was. And so Paul gets to Corinth and he spent 18 months there as we find in our reading. When he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he described his coming to them and he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Now remember, it cost Paul a lot to take the gospel to various places, but he says, I'll endure everything for the sake of the elect. 
There was a lot for a human to be terrified about going to Corinth with a message of a crucified saviour. It was no easy thing. Now, I don't know what picture you've got in your mind of the Apostle Paul, but he was flesh and blood like you and I are. He was prone to all of the same feelings, all of the same hesitations, all of the same weaknesses, and yet with the strength with which Christ strengthened him and with his feeling inside that he had to take the message other places, he went. But it scared him. Have you ever been scared about witnessing for Jesus? Of course you have. I've heard it said that evangelism is something that uh, unbelievers and Christians both hate. (laughs) And yet, Paul didn't let it stop him. In weakness and in fear and much trembling, he came to the Corinthians. That's what's describing what we're about to read about. So why would would he have been fearful about going to Corinth? It was a cosmopolitan city. It was a thriving trade hub. It was the most important city that Paul had so far visited. It was more important than Athens. Athens was past its glory days. Corinth was right in the middle of its. It had a population which was staggeringly large for a city in those days, 750,000, three quarters of a million. That was a massive city in the ancient world. At that time, Rome, the most important city throughout the empire, would have had a population of about a million. So Corinth was huge. It was a bustling metropolis. Now, Corinth was strategically located. Uh, You can see there on the map, uh, Corinth had two harbours because it was located on a narrow neck of land that geographers call an isthmus. It was on the isthmus of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a famous place because every two years, the Olympic Games were every four years, but Corinth had the Isthmian Games every two years. So it was a place that athletes from around the Greek-speaking world came to compete, which is why Paul used to like to use athletic metaphors in in his teaching. But it had two harbours which meant that it could reach out to Asia and over to Europe as well. And so it had seafarers from all the known world coming together in one place. But as well as that, it it was on a a land bridge that meant that it could communicate with all of the different regions of, of, of Greece. And so because of those advantages, it had become a very prosperous city. Now, if you were to go to Corinth today... Uh, you'd find the isthmus there, which is 6.4 kilometres across. Now, you'll notice, careful observers, that there's a blue line straight through the middle, which wasn't there in Paul's day, right? But what they did in Paul's day was rather than sail... If you you, Look here, this, this southern region here, it was very dangerous to navigate round there. It added a fair bit to your journey to have to navigate round the southern tip of the uh, the Achaean Peninsula. And so what they did was they built a road and they got the ships out and they carried them across the 6.4 kilometres on, on logs with slaves towing them. That's called portaging. And that's what they did because it was much safer to take the boats across by land rather than sail all the way down to the south. But that means you've got a huge labour force which is dedicated to seafaring. And I don't know if you've heard stories about sailors, girl in every port and all that sort of thing. Uh, That was what Corinth was like. 
Huge population dedicated to seafaring. Now, these days, there's a canal being cut through. Uh, it was cut through in the late 19th century. It's only about as wide as a cricket, bit, bit wider than a cricket pitch. It's not quite big enough for a big boat to go through, so it's mainly just a tourist attraction these days. But that's the, um, that's Corinth. Its population was mainly Roman. Um, the Romans got very angry with the Corinthians in about 146 BC and they destroyed the city completely which is what you do when you're the top government in power. And they rebuilt the city and they populated it with people that had been that had finished their Roman military service. Those people were probably very ambitious to build a new life. And so they were ambitious sort of businessmen. There was a cultural melting pot we know from history that there were Romans, Greeks, Jews, Egyptians, all sorts of different people were to be found in Corinth. And it had many, many, many diverse religious expressions. There was over 26 sacred places throughout the city, uh, worshipping the gods and lords many. So Nathan spoke last week about how when Paul got to Athens, he saw statues everywhere that distressed him because of the, very, the, the great variety of gods that were worshipped in Athens. It was no different in Corinth. But it was a home to artists and philosophers. But Corinth was probably most famous for its sexual decadence. Now, if you've read the letters, to first, especially 1 Corinthians, you'll realise some of the problems that Paul had to confront with people that had come out of that background that had now become Christians. But they were still carrying on some aspects of sexual behaviour that the city around them wouldn't have regarded as abnormal at all. Now, there was a word that went into the local language. If you Corinthianised something, it meant you'd spoiled it. That was how the rest of the Greek-speaking world thought of Corinth. If you Corinthianised something, you'd spoiled it. But there was another phrase that crept into the language. A Corinthian girl was another way of describing a prostitute. Because just outside of town, in fact overlooking the ancient city of Corinth, was this Acropolis known as the Acro-Corinth. And on the top of the Acropolis, that great big rocky outcrop there, was the Temple of Aphrodite. Now, Aphrodite was the Greek way of saying the same goddess as the Romans called Venus. And she was the goddess of love. And her temple was served by a thousand cult prostitutes. And having done their job during the day, they'd prowl the streets at night. It was regarded as perfectly normal to make connection with your god by having sex with a prostitute. That was normal. It was as normal as breathing. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, one of the things he has to deal with is, should you go and eat meat that's been offered to an idol? Well, the thing is, if you wanted a night out, the restaurant in Corinth was attached to one of the temples. And the girls who served your meal would later serve you sexually. And that's how you prove that you were a man. When, you, when a, a boy turned 18, Dad would take him to the restaurant. That was normal. That was everyday life. And that's Corinth. And so Gordon Fee is a great New Testament commentator and he says this, Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles and Las Vegas of the ancient world. Can you work out why Paul went there with his knees knocking this was going to be no pushover and yet he realised because of its strategic location if he could get the gospel to take root there it had the potential to travel far 
because of all the people that made their way there and because of all the natural advantages of a place that was a trade hub. And so Paul wanted to preach in Corinth. And so he taught for 18 months in a city that one of the Roman poets, namely Horace, he said it's a city where none but the tough can survive. And he went there in fear and trembling. But he went for the sake of God's elect. But Paul was a part-time preacher in these first four verses. And so we read there, verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. Now Paul had a gift for friendship. If you read all of Paul's letters, at the end of them, there'll usually be a series of greetings. Paul was a man who was gifted in the art of friendship. And wherever he went, he made connections with people who would help him to preach the gospel. And amongst the most famous are Aquila and Priscilla. Sometimes Priscilla, the wife, goes first. Um, Sometimes she's listed before Aquila. It may be that Priscilla was actually a Gentile. Uh, and she'd become a follower of Jesus. Perhaps she'd become a Jew first and then become a follower. But it may be that she was from a very well-born Roman family, which is why sometimes in the Bible we read Priscilla coming before Aquila. We're not really sure. But nonetheless, they were a significant ministry couple for Paul. But what this is is a reference to the fact that in 49 AD, and this, this is important to remember, we're reading real history here. These are things that actually happened. It's not make-believe, it's not fairy stories. Luke is at pains to point out who the Roman authorities were and where all of these things happened. This is history and we can bank on it because these things really did take place. But Luke is referring here to the fact that in 49 AD, the Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. Now, when you are an authoritarian, dictatorial government system, it doesn't matter what you do to ethnic minorities. The Jews were numerous enough in Rome that they could be blamed for things. But the reason for that seems to be something that one of their historians, namely Suetonius, talked about in his book, The Lives of the Twelve Caesars. And he said that the reason Claudius expelled them was because of frequent riots that came about at the instigation of Crestus. Now, it seems to be that what he's talking about is that he understands that the Jews were arguing about Christ. And those arguments became violent. And so Claudius' solution to that was to boot all of the Jews out because Claudius wasn't interested in the distinction between a Christian and a Jew, so he just got rid of a lot of them because he was sick of the trouble. But as a result, God used that to bring the gospel to other places. And so Aquila and Priscilla found their way to Corinth and Paul found his way to them because they were people who worked in the same trade. They were tent makers. And so we find there uh, in verse 3, because he was the same trade, he, uh, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he worked to support himself and working to support himself, verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, the reason that Paul had a trade, even though we know he had been a rabbi, was because the scribes and the rabbis believed that no one should actually make their living from teaching the law. They thought that the law should be taught in a way that wasn't compromised by someone being paid for it. And so they insisted that every scribe and every rabbi had a trade that they could find gainful employment with to support themselves. 
And so Paul would have been of that kind. He was a rabbi, we know that. And so he learnt the trade of tent making. And it was a good thing to do because, you see, the sailors who sailed from Corinth would have had tents on the deck to sleep on, to sleep in. And so it would have been a lucrative trade there. And so in Acts chapter 20, he's able to look back to his time in Ephesus and he says to the people there, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. Now, referring to his hands, his hands were probably deeply scarred from all the needle pricks that he was when he, when he was sewing tents together. So Paul's a part-time preacher at this stage. He's subsidising his own ministry through the craft of making tents. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks in a part-time kind of way. But then in verses 5 to 11, we see something. Paul started to preach full-time. So have a look at chapter 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Silas and Timothy had been left behind in Thessalonica and now Paul's called them and they've come to him in Corinth and they've brought with them a gift, a gift from the churches of Macedonia, which means that Paul doesn't have to make tents anymore. And so that word occupied means fully engrossed. He's uncompromised in the time that he's now able to spend reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue. He can devote himself to teaching full time. Now in 2 Corinthians, again, we're looking backwards and forwards from Acts to the letters to, to, to get a bigger picture of what's going on here. Paul was able to say to the Corinthians, he talked a lot about money with the Corinthians because that was one thing that the Corinthian Christians really had. They loved money. And they also had this idea that they should be able to pay their preachers because if they paid their preachers, he who pays the piper calls the tune. They thought they would have been able to control Paul and his ministry. And Paul says, no, I don't want to be controlled by you. I've got the gospel to bring to you and I'm going to give it to you without fear or favour. So in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. And it's clear from reading the letters to the Corinthians that they objected to that. They wanted to pay him because they wanted to keep him under their thumb. I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. When I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. That's Timothy and Silas who've just turned up in our reading. In Philippians 4 verse 15, he commends the Philippians. He says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So Paul was supported in his preaching in Corinth by donations from Philippi that had just been brought by Timothy and Silas. Now there's a lesson in that for us as well, isn't there? How keen are we to see the gospel preached elsewhere? Are we prepared to invest in gospel ministry that doesn't directly benefit our church? There's a challenge. Because the Philippians were, and it's written in sacred scripture that Paul says that's good. Well, here's a question. Should preachers be paid? (laughs) Before I started at the other church that I work at, I asked that everything be cleared 
that there'd be no hesitation about me being there because I'd had enough trouble and I wanted to go to somewhere that wasn't going to cause me grief. And so I was assured that it had all been passed by a members' meeting and everything was good. And then at the first annual general meeting after my start there, somebody stood up and said, can we afford two pastors? And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> I thought we dealt with this. Well, anyway, people came up to me after and said, he always does that. Um, but just when I was preparing this talk and looking these things up, I found a Facebook post saying pastors should be like Paul and do it for nothing. Well, Paul did minister for nothing. He supported himself uh, for a, a period of time. But then um, he was fully occupied with the word. So should preachers be paid? Well, Paul says to the Corinthians when he writes to them about money, 1 Corinthians 9, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? That's a question he asks. To the Galatians, he's quite specific. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, the message from the book of Acts is, sometimes it's right for a pastor or a preacher to support themselves but sometimes it's not. The question for any church is, which way is it best to operate? Is it best to operate with a person who is fully occupied with the word so that they're not distracted by the need to make a secular living or not? That's what churches and pastors need to work out. Uh, Both of them are okay. But if you get sick of paying me, you'll have to help me learn to make tents. Uh, (laughs) But again, it's, it's something that churches need to work out. Are you going to get better bang for your buck paying someone to teach the word? Or um, is the gospel's interest best served by that person working part-time? Um, around the world, there's different ways of doing it. Well, anyway, back to uh, chapter verses 5 to 11 where Paul's preaching full-time. He was occupied with the word and he was particularly occupied at this stage by testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, did it strike you when Vicky read that that's a rather unusual way of putting it? The Christ was Jesus, right? Luke hasn't done that accidentally because he uses the very same phrase later in our reading. Uh, the The Christ was Jesus. What that means is when Paul goes and preaches, he's telling all of the Jews in the synagogue that Jesus is Israel's longed for king because they knew that the scriptures told them that one day God would send a king who would rule the whole world. The word Christ, we've said this before, but you've got to keep it in mind, Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's not his last name. His real name was Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus' son of Joseph. Christ is a title which means the anointed one. He's the king because kings were anointed with oil to show that they'd been set apart. Paul's message in the synagogues is that Jesus is the king that Israel's been waiting for. Later on in Acts, uh, Paul describes Jesus as the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel, all that they've been longing for. He's the subject of Jewish scripture. We've seen that in Luke 24. We've seen it earlier on in Acts. Jesus is what the Old Testament is about. And so Paul says when he goes in there, and it seems there's evidence that when Paul read the Old Testament scriptures in the synagogues, any time he got to a passage about Yahweh, he'd insert the name Jesus, just so that there was no mistake. It's no wonder that people who didn't accept his message got cross with him. 
And so they did get cross here and so you'll see that he meets with opposition and with reviling. They opposed him and they reviled him. And so he answered with two prophetic signs. He shook the dust out of his garment, which is something that Jesus said to do if a town won't receive his messengers. He says, take the shoes off your feet and shake every little fragment of dust off. So Paul does that out of his garments. But then he also says, your blood be on your own heads. Now, does that sound a bit nasty? No, that's a plain statement of fact. Paul's message is the difference between life and death. That's how serious it is. That's the difference that Christ makes to any of us. And Paul says, if you reject my message, you've rejected Christ and you've rejected the hope of eternal life and your blood will be on your own head. Your life is in your own hands. But Paul's discharged his duty. Now, when he does that, he's alluding to something that the prophet Ezekiel said. So he's acting as a prophet here, a messenger of God. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent, says Paul. But then he also says, from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And that would have made them really cross. Because he says, I'm going to go and tell Gentiles that Israel's king is the world's king. And that would have made them really angry. But going to the Gentiles only involved him going next door. Because we read there in verse 7, uh, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptised. And so Paul had some success in Corinth, this hard city that made him scared. There were people who believed in much greater numbers than they had in Athens. And yet he was booted out and began to meet next door, which would have been very provocative. But then Paul receives heavenly reassurance in verses 9 to 10. Now look at this, this is important. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Notice there, no one will attack you to harm you. It doesn't mean people aren't going to attack him. But God is going to protect Paul so that the message can continue to penetrate. No one will attack you to harm you. And why is that? For I have many in this city who are my people. God knows those who are his. God has chosen in advance those who are his. It's Paul's job to preach and find out who they are. But the only way we find out who God's chosen are is when they respond. It's not our job to work out who the chosen are, it's our job to be faithful in preaching. And so we go with the message, which will reveal those that God has chosen, because God is sovereign. Jim Pack is an English theologian, he died a few years ago, but in his chapter on election in one of his books he says this, we should treat everyone we meet as potentially a member of God's elect. Would that change the way we relate to people? If we honestly went around our business thinking that? Could this be a person who has yet to respond to the gospel? Could I be the one who leads them to Christ? The elect are revealed when they receive Christ they're known to God they're unknown to us until they trust Jesus so verses 12 to 17 is Paul becoming a lawbreaker um, 
When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Achaia was the region in which Corinth and Athens were, uh, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now the tribunal, you can still visit it if you went to uh, the remains of ancient Corinth, that's where Paul was taken. Uh, below the Acro Corinth, below the, uh, the temple to Aphrodite, way up high, that's where the Roman government expressed its legal demands. And so the Jews brought Paul to Gallio, the proconsul, and they made this charge against him. And the charge was, in verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Not contrary to Roman law, but contrary to Jewish law. So they're asking the proconsul, the governor in that area, will you adjudicate in a religious squabble? Because at that stage the Romans hadn't worked out that Jews and Christians were on different paths really. Jews and Christians looked identical to the Romans and even the Jews probably hadn't worked it out yet. So this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Gallio says, I refuse to be a judge of these things. He says, you sort it out. You work out what your religion entails. And so that little section there ends up with a man called Sosthenes uh, who is the head of the, the uh, synagogue by this stage, he's profoundly beaten. Gallio has declared the way, which is what the early Christian movement was called, the way, he's declared it legal. And probably that was important because other Roman judges would have heard his judgment and they would have used that as a precedent. One of the reasons Luke wrote the book of Acts is to show that Christianity was no threat to the government of Rome and he's demonstrating here that a governor the proconsul of Achaia Gallio says no I'm not going to get involved in these niceties about Judaism and and Christianity so he's declared the way legal but then he turns a blind eye to anti-Jewish violence now we're not sure who beat Sosthenes up whether it was Jews because he'd failed to get a prosecution or whether it was just people from Corinth who were probably looking for any excuse they could to beat up on some Jews every now and again. But whatever, Gallio turned the other way, he didn't do anything about it. So he's declared the way legal, but he's turned a blind eye to Jewish violence. But then Sosthenes is named in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as having become a Christian. Is it the same Sosthenes? We're not sure, but could be. But he went from being the head of the synagogue now to a believer in the Lord Jesus. So verses 18 to 23, we find Paul travelling on. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and took with him Priscilla and Aquila. So they left from Corinth. They went across to Ephesus, back over in Asia Minor. They went down to Caesarea and up to Antioch where the mission had begun. They stayed a while in Antioch and then Paul went and strengthened the believers in Galatia and Phrygia. You couldn't stop Paul. And his ministry was one of wanting to encourage people to stay true to the Lord Jesus, even in the midst of adversity. So he went from one place to the next throughout that region, strengthening the disciples. Now, we all need courage and strength, don't we? Is that a ministry that you could fulfil? Are you a strengthener? Do you get alongside people to help them to live the normal Christian life? 
Paul made it the, the goal of his life, not only to teach the gospel, to make sure that the people that had believed because of his preaching were actually strengthened in it as well. And that's something that you can do without leaving home. Strengthening other believers. But then the last little section of our chapter shows us that ministry can go on even without Paul. And so while Paul is strengthening the disciples elsewhere, he's left Priscilla and Aquila, the woman's name first in this instance, he's left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus where they meet this man called Apollos. So verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, Apollos had become a believer in Jesus, but he didn't know all that much yet. And so Priscilla and Aquila instructed him. They taught him some more. They could see that he knew plenty, but he didn't know the whole story because he'd only really heard about Jesus from John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist said this is the one coming after me who's greater than I am but that's as much as Apollos knew about Jesus. He was able to show to the Jews in the synagogue that Jesus was the Christ but Priscilla and Aquila they took on a strengthening ministry as well. They took him aside and they taught him the way more plainly and so as a result of that Because he was one who was fervent in spirit and competent to teach the scriptures, the believers in Ephesus sent him to Corinth at a time when Paul wasn't there. They sent him with a letter to commend him. And so Apollos was a strengthener too because in verse 27 we read that um, when he arrived he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Corinth was a hard place to be a Christian and Apollos turned up and strengthened them. And he had the same method and the same message. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Same message as Paul, same method. Go to the synagogue first. So where does this leave us? This is in some ways a fairly unremarkable chapter. There's a, there's a public beating. There's you know, Paul being dragged before the authorities again and all that sort of thing. There's a few quiet conversions going on. But there's no dramatic miracles or anything like that. So what are we to learn from it? Well, I think there are some things. And that is that despite opposition and reviling, God will be with those who bear his message. Paul was told, nothing will harm you uh, because there's people here who need to hear the message. God has many people in every place. We, We may not know who they are yet, But do we believe that God is finished with Mafra? Or are we it? Are there more here who could respond to the gospel who haven't been told yet? Because that's our mission. And our mission will be accomplished. Nathan talked a fair bit last week about just the simple mission, the ordinary mission of the gospel. And in Peter Adams' words, it comes about when people like you and me name drop Jesus. Now we don't have to know everything. Apollos didn't know everything. He was instructed further. And yet he was able to work with what he had to do an effective mission. Don't wait until you know everything about Jesus before you start sharing your faith. Because you'll never do it. Because no one knows everything. 
But look for those opportunities. In fact, pray for those opportunities because God has many people in this city. He knows them, we don't. But what do we go to them with? We go to them with the simple message. We preach Christ crucified. Paul says it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Not everybody's going to like it. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So here's the challenge today. Who can you strengthen? Who around here needs strengthening in their faith? Just a simple word of encouragement. But will you pray for opportunities? Because God has many in this city. Let's pray. Uh, Loving Father, we pray that you would help us to be like Paul. Uh, Help us to do all things for the sake of the elect. Help us to be obedient to the Lord Jesus and his call and his command to go with the good news, even when we too are struck with weakness and trembling, with fear. Lord God, help us to be so confident in the power of your word and the power of the message of the Lord Jesus, the crucified and risen one, that we'll be able to go with the necessary boldness just to commend Jesus to others. Help us not to be afraid of rejection, uh, but help us to, uh, to be faithful in prayer and faithful in taking up those opportunities you present to us to share the good news with others. Help us to believe sincerely that there are others in this town who are yours, who are yet to put their trust in you. And so I pray that you would cause us to be a faithful and obedient people, a people who look for opportunities to witness to Jesus and who look for opportunities to strengthen each other. And so we pray that you would accomplish these things in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.